to a passage of scripture that we looked at uh, Sunday morning. But I want to look at it from a little different angle. If you brought a Bible or if it's on your phone or your tablet. Oh, there we go. Thank you. I, I knew that wasn't projecting like it was supposed to. Um, turn with me again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And Sunday morning, we looked at the villagers, if you remember rightly, and uh, their prayer to be left alone because Jesus was disturbing them greatly. I want us to look at the gathering demoniac tonight. The man who caused all the commotion. Mark Gospel, chapter 5, we'll begin with verse 1. And would you stand with me, please, out of reverence for the word? They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasthenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. But Jesus was saying to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. You may be seated. I want to take that 
19th verse as kind of a text and the basis for the things that I want to share with you tonight. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. The story of which this text is a part has certain details about it that are very unfamiliar to most of us. But we mustn't let this fact blind us to the central message. This story, as unique as it is, tells us what Christ did for a poor, demented wreck in the long ago. And it also tells us what he does today for the soul that gives him a real chance. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. In the King James it says, tell them what great things. I love that phrase. You know, there are many who seem to think that, that our religion has in it more weight and burden than, than wings and joy. But, but in reality, the Christian life is filled with great things. Do you have such a story to tell? Is there anything taking place in your life on on a day-by-day basis that can only be described by the word great? Um, A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking to about 80 pastors on the Joplin district of the Church of the Nazarene up in Missouri. And I began my talk with them by saying, I I want to tell you, when Christianity and ministry broke into music and singing and dancing for me, and I mean that literally. I was in my second pastorate, young and green as a gourd. (laughs) Still looks like I got picked green, don't I? And... um, But I I was having my devotions one day and and I said to the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you you are letting me pastor these people. And I love them. But I love you. And I love your cause. Now, because I'm their pastor, I'm I'm, going to pray for them and I'm going to officiate at their weddings and their funerals. And and I'm going to win people to Jesus. But I really love you. And so if there's something that you want done that nobody else may want to do, maybe they think it's insignificant. Um, maybe it's the way that you made me, you gifted me in a certain way. Uh, no, nobody needs to know anything about this. I don't need to report it at district assembly. It doesn't have to be in the Herald of Holiness. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> Now holiness today. But I said, I, 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 don't, I don't care whether anyone ever knows. But if it's dear to your heart, I want to do it for you. Now, you don't want to pray a prayer like that unless you really mean it. Because God's going to take you up on it. And about three weeks went by, and and my first little assignment came, and I I won't take the time to talk about that tonight, what it involved, but it was so disguised, I almost missed it. But the Lord finally said, hello, this is one of those little things that I want done. And, And from that day on, little assignments began to come to me. 
And, and it took my relationship with God and to God onto a totally different plane. And it's not that great things were not happening at our church because they were. God was blessing us and, and we were growing and the finances were growing and, and God was just helping us in every way. But, but I, you know, I think sometimes we get so involved with the idea of building a church and, and I don't want to minimize that for heaven's sake knows I don't. But this religion thing is really about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's about knowing Him intimately. It's about being able to hear His voice. It's about knowing His heart and how He feels about certain things. And listening. Uh, you know, I think sometimes when we pray, haven't you, ever, haven't you ever had somebody who's having a conversation with you, only it's a monologue and you can't get a word in edgeways and they're just... I think that's how God feels sometimes. We're just always talking to Him, always unloading everything, but we never get quiet. And we wonder, why hasn't God said anything to me? Well, He's a gentleman and so He's just waiting for you to give Him His turn so He can talk. And... And so that, that simple little prayer has made life so interesting and so exciting over the last 40 years. I wouldn't trade anything for the day. I'm sure the Holy Spirit prompted me to pray that prayer. But I just wouldn't trade anything for it because from that day on, I could honestly say great things begin to happen in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And if, you're, if your Christian life is just kind of settled down into a routine and you've served Jesus for a long, long time, and, and, and I, I, I thank the Lord if you've done that. But if you would just like for it to go to a little different dimension, I just dare you to pray your own version of that prayer. Because God will take you up on it. Now, he, he won't have you doing the same kind of thing that I... But I I've had him take me a thousand miles across this country to a town with no more than 85 people in the whole town just to meet one individual. And I did that for about five years in that pastorate. And then I, I moved to another church and, and in my second year there, the Lord said, we've lost it, I said, but I, I hope I'm talking loud enough you can hear me. Um, the Lord said to me, Nathan, I, I want you to become an evangelist. Because I want you to be free to do these little assignments for me all the time. And he said, we'll do revivals. But sometimes I'll use revival as a reason to get you to one person. <laughs> because I've heard their prayer. And I've heard their cry. We'll do some other things in revival that week, but but your real reason for being there will be for one individual. And I think sometimes in the church we lose sight of this because we, we Americans were just so involved in masses and everything has to be big. I mean, if we'd been God, everything would have been eagles and there wouldn't have been any hummingbirds. <laughs> because we just think big is everything. But if you really study the life of Jesus, he, he preached to the multitudes, but he never forgot the value.
out of his way. I need to do one of these. Because some of you may be hard hearing like I am, and so if I'm not really projecting, you won't hear everything I say. Okay. And and so it just it just I mean life for me just took on this incredible sparkle. And I'd like to see some of you. I mean, most of the people I'm looking at here, most, not all, but most, you've you've served Jesus for a long time. Been in the church for a long time. And you know a lot about Christianity. And and you have an intimate relationship with Jesus, but but I want to assure you that it can go to another level if you tell him you would like for it to. And if there's nothing going on in your religious experience that you really can't count as something great, then then your relationship with Jesus isn't doing for you what God really intended for it to do. It's not the fault of the Lord. It's not the fault of the church. It's your own fault. Because wherever Jesus Christ has his way, he does great things. That, that, and that's what happened here. Now, I want you to look at this man as Jesus found him. The description given is, is so clear that it's evident that it came from an eyewitness. And the front of the boat that Jesus had been riding in had hardly touched the shore when this ghastly figure came rushing out from the tombs. He's wearing practically no clothing. He's disheveled. He's unkept. To his wrists and ankles still cling the fragments of chains in which men have vainly tried to bind him. He is a poor, half-demented creature that we hardly identify with. But when we really face the facts, we are, we are made to realize that actually we have a lot in common with this man. You say, Brother Compton, you got to be kidding. He was a wreck. <laughs> I know. Now, it's true that we're more sane, we're more decent, we're more respectable. And yet, when you really study this story, you begin to realize that there was much about him. That may also be true of many of us. So, what was the matter with him? Well, the first thing I noticed was is that he was a divided personality. When Jesus asked him his name, he, he gave a ready answer. He said, my name is Legion. In other words, he was not one, but many. He, he was not so much a personality, as H.G. Wells would say, but a battleground. He was at war within himself. He was being tugged in a thousand different directions. A thousand different impulses and passions were warring in his soul. And all around us today, we meet people like that sometimes among our own loved ones. And sometimes when we can really, really get gut level honest, even when we look at ourselves. And the truth of this is emphasized by modern psychologists. They tell us, for instance, that that we're possessed of a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. 
And in the subconscious mind are the driving instincts that have come to us from our ancestors. These instincts are without conscience. They have no moral sense. They seek to be gratified without the slightest attention as to the question of whether it's right or wrong. But in the conscious mind, there is that sense of oughtness. There are things there that make us say, I owe and I must or I must not. And so our ideals fight with our instincts. Our higher self battles with our lower self and we're divided personalities. We become the victims of the most terrible war of all and it's the war on the inside. It's the war that takes place after we become a Christian. And, and you see, psychologists tell us that conversion takes place in the frontal lobe of our brain. And that's one-fourth of our brain capacity. But that means that there's still three-fourths of us that's unregenerated. And here's a man, for instance, who's in the Bible, who's conscious within himself that he fears the Lord he's a man of faith he's a man of prayer and yet even while he's praying there's another self within him that refuses to kneel there's another self that jeers and sneers while the higher self seeks to pray and out of the agony of that conflict the psalmist said unite my heart to fear your name he has a reverence for the Lord that's altogether genuine, but, but in spite of this, he's conscious of the fact that in some cases it's really only a half-hearted reverence. And secondly, I want you to notice that this poor man, being at war with himself, was naturally wretched. The story says, always night and day. He was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Always he was fighting himself. Always he was wounding himself. Always he was his own worst enemy. He was a total stranger to real happiness. And you see, that's true. That's always true of any divided personality. A divided personality can never be happy. However beautiful our surroundings, however large our bank account, however great our success, however thunderous the applause that may ring in our ears, if we are at war with ourselves, we are miserable and will continue to be so until our conflict is hushed into peace. And not only was he divided and wretched, but he was anti-social. In this case, this man separated himself from those who were around him. He lived alone. Nobody could live with him. Warring with himself, he also warred with those around him. And this concept is true of all divided personalities. When we get to fighting with ourselves, when we tend to fight with everybody else, when we go to pieces and explode over nothing, when we lose our tempers and we slam doors and break up dishes, and when we unsheath the sword of our tongue and we stab right and left, we call it nerves. We tell how poorly we slept last night and how badly we feel. But often the real reason is is that we lack inward harmony. We're at war with ourselves. And those torn by inward strife are generally very hard to live with. And you see, because he could not live with himself and those around him, neither could he live for them. He couldn't live with them and he couldn't live for them. 
He was too busy fighting with himself to have any time for the needs of others. In fact, he, he was a liability instead of an asset. He was a hindrance rather than a help. Instead of making the burdens of others a little bit lighter, he just made everything more difficult. And then there's a final thing that I have observed about this man. All those who were acquainted with him thought he was incurable. He had no hope for himself. Nobody had any hope for him. He was beyond help. The story says no man could tame him. This is the way he was when Jesus found him. Divided, wretched, unable to live with or for others. So what did Jesus do for this demoniac? Well, the first thing I notice is is that he gave him a unified personality. And he can do the same for you and me. In fact, we're not very likely to ever reach that high goal except through Jesus Christ. Certainly, no man or woman can ever find inward peace by yielding to their baser self. And however fully we may seem to do so, we can never quite hush the voices that call to us from the high road. Uh, I, I love to read... And uh, when I was a kid, I, I read that there's a, there's a beautiful illustration of what I'm talking about here in literature and, and what I consider one of the best dog stories ever written. And, and I remember reading it as a child. And several years ago, um, a friend of mine gave me a cassette version of it. And I, I hadn't listened to it, hadn't read it or listened to it in probably 50 years, maybe more. It was a book entitled The Call of the Wild. And if you happen to read that story, you may recall that it was about a splendid Newfoundland named Buck. And Buck was stolen from his home in the States and shipped to Alaska during the gold rush days. And here he had to begin life anew, and he was no longer a fireside pet. And he, he was in a harsh world where in order to survive, he had to learn to live according to the law of the club and the fang. And he became a husky, and, and he was the pride of his new master, and he was the best and strongest dog that ran the trail. But it came to pass after a while that his master became ill. And as a result, Buck had more leisure time than was really good for him. And in his restlessness, he, he began to make excursion into the forest. And at first they were kind of brief, but gradually they became longer and longer. And, and soon he was a good hunter and amply able to provide food for himself. And one night while on a hunt, he heard a howl of a wolf. And at once his bristles went up. And he was prepared to do battle with this wild thing that he felt was a, a natural enemy to him. But as time went on and the master continued to be ill, Buck became accustomed to those weird howls. And one night when he came face to face with this wolf whose mere howls had once raised the bristles on the back of his neck and made him eager for battle, there was no conflict at all. And instead, the dog and the wolf put their noses together and they, as a token of the fact that they had buried the hatchet, so to speak, and, and they trotted through the aisles of the forest together and they sat on their haunches and howled to the distant stars like their ancestors had done for generations. But with the breaking of the day, Buck would always 
returned home. And at last his master died and, and the big tie that bound him to the old life was broken. And soon after that, Buck began to run with the pack, seemingly the wildest wolf of them all. And yet I dare say that he never could quite throw off the restraints of his former life. And he, he could never really completely become a wolf. And what was true of Buck is also true of us. And when we take the low road, we can never really find our true self. What Buck needed was not some new collar. Now I'm going to catch up here. I'll back up. There we go. Technology is wonderful <laughs> when it cooperates. You see, Buck didn't need some new kind of collar. He didn't need a stronger chain. What he needed, and all that he needed, was a master. No dog ever arrives to his full potential without a master. And what is true of a dog is also true of a man or a woman. You see, it's not really a question, folks, as to whether we will have a master. The question is, which master is going to control us? The one from above or the one from below? And how perfectly the Apostle Paul describes this inner conflict that goes in our souls. Listen to his anguish cry recorded over there in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. Verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, when Paul wrote that, keep in mind, he's writing to Christians. There in Rome, he's not writing to unconverted people. He's writing to Christians. And you see, we talked a moment ago about how conversion takes place in the frontal lobe. And that's a fourth of our brain, but three-fourths of us is still unregenerated. The Bible has another term for that unregenerated part. It's called the old man or the principle of sin or the carnal nature. And so when Paul uses this phrase, he's, he's writing to Christians, but he realizes this war is going on. If you read the seventh chapter, he talks about the fact when I want to do good, evil is present right there with me. In my new nature, I want to do what's right, but I find another law warring against my mind and bringing me into captivity. And so he goes down through all of that. And then he just cries out in agony and says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And when he used that phrase, it immediately conjured up to those Roman Christians a very intense picture. And the reason that it did was because there was a Roman proconsul, a governor, in the Apostles Paul's days, whose favorite form of capital punishment when somebody deserved to die... He didn't have them fight a gladiator or run them through with a sword or a spear or toss them to the lions. 
he would take the condemned person and put him in a cell, and then they would tie a dead carcass face to face, chest to chest, arm to arm, leg to leg, and the living person died from the rotting gangrenous flesh of that carcass tied to them. You say, Brother Covington, I can't think of a more horrible way to die. I can't either. But you see what the Apostle Paul is saying to us, that holiness or sanctification or the spirit-filled life is not an option, folks. It's absolutely essential to our spiritual survival. It's not for just a few superstar saints. There's a war goes on inside of us until that war is hushed, until Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. He isn't really Lord at all. And so somewhere along in our spiritual journey, God the Holy Ghost has to begin to deal with us about that carnal nature on the inside. And, and, and as young Christians, we're hot and we're cold, we're up, we're down, we're in, we're out. I mean, just the time when you really want to really do the best for Jesus, this ugly side can show up. And we're embarrassed, or at least we should be, <laughs> when it comes up. And, and so, who, who's going to be in charge? See, it's not a matter of whether we're going to have a self. The question is, is self in charge or is God in charge of self? I mean, you you can't be a selfless person, but you can be an unselfish person by God's grace. So, who indeed is going to answer this question? Well, I, I love that Paul answers it himself. You know, you, you understand it in the original manuscript, which we don't have, but the copies of them. There aren't the divisions like there are in your Bible. And, and sometimes the scribes and, and, and those people translating that, they had to kind of guess where the thought ends. But really, verse 1 of chapter 8 belongs back in chapter 7 because Paul's asking this question. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has set me free. There is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See? And he won. And we may win, not, not by fighting against God, by sur- surrendering to him. He, he gave and he gives to those who fully surrender to him a unified personality. And then I notice that Jesus gave this man inward peace. And this is always the result when we make our surrender to God full and complete. For you see, when we have peace with God, then we have peace within ourselves. And that's our Lord's special legacy to every one of us. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. And this is one of the great things that Jesus did and does for those who give him a chance. Every man or woman's religion ought to give him that inward unity that issues itself in inward peace. And then I notice that Jesus enabled this man to live with and for others. I find it interesting Because when this story takes place, the the dark clouds are already gathering on Jesus' horizon. 
And a good number of those who followed him early on have left. In fact, so many have left that Jesus turned to the disciples and said, And will you also go away? And so you would have thought that here, I mean, here, here's a new believer and he's anxious and he'd love to go with the Lord. And Jesus said, no, no, go back home. That fascinates me. He sent him back to the intimate circle of his own family. He sent him back to live with those that we either love the best or hate the most. He sent him back to live with those whom up to that experience time he couldn't live with. And let me just say something, folks. Right, right here is one of the highest tests of our religion. Does it make us easy to live with? If we are cantankerous and disagreeable, if everybody is sorry when we come and glad when we go, then I don't care how much we talk about being a Christian and how much we think we have been one. We, we've missed the mark, and we need to let the Holy Spirit do some work on the inside of it. Here's a test that every man and woman ought to put to their religion. Does it enable us to live with other people? And a Christian that has inner peace will certainly be able to meet this test. And here are some of the great things that our Lord can do for us. He, he can give us a unified personality. He can give us inward peace. He can enable us to live with and for others. And I don't mean that he does it instantly, but instantly he can make a beginning. You see, when we make that absolute surrender and make Jesus Lord of everything, you get the fruit of the Spirit. You get love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, Meekness, self-control. But you get it in the embryo stage. And all the rest of your life, God, the Holy Ghost, will be working on your life. Now, I, I want to tell you, I believe in the crisis experience. I believe that it's as definite as being saved. But it's not an end in and of itself. It's a beginning. I mean, we've, we've got people in our churches who are saved and sanctified and petrified. <clears throat> they quit growing. They're satisfied with where they are. Uh, let, let me illustrate it this way. Let, let's say you have a peach tree in your backyard here in Longmont. And if spring comes like it ought to and we don't get one of those really nice periods of warm, warm, warm things and everything starts blooming and then we get one of those northerners up over the Rockies... <laughs> But if things get to go in their sequence, blossoms come. And a couple of three weeks after that, you, you can, and the blossoms go away, you can go out there and, and you'll find little green nubbins on that tree. About, about, about as long as that little joint on your finger and about that big around. And you can look at that and you can say, that's a peach. Oh, but it's a far cry from the peach that it's going to be. Later, along about August, September... When the nutrients have been drawn up through the roots and the rains have come and the sun has shone on it. And so when we first make that act of surrender, that total surrender to Jesus Christ, we get the fruit of the Spirit, but you get it like this. And all the rest of your life, God 
will be working on you and developing you and expanding those graces. That, that's why if you're a, a relatively new, spirit-filled person, if you look at somebody in the church who's been following Jesus and walking in the light for 50 years, you compare your life to theirs, you think, something didn't happen to me. Oh, yes, it did. No, but I'm not like that. Well, you will be 50 years from now if you walk in the light. You remember what John said? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is cleansing us present participle in the Greek. Not aorist tense, which denotes a one-time act. Is cleansing us. And, and that light is not like a floodlight. It's like a rheostat. And you're walking along and you're just having this good relationship with God and you're feeling good. And then some Sunday morning, pastor is preaching a message that God gave him. And the Holy Spirit all of a sudden cranks up the rheostat and says, oh, uh, we need to get my holiness into this facet of your life. Paul said, I die daily. Now, he didn't mean that he ran down to the altar every day. <clears throat> but I think we should come here whenever we need to. In the early days of my Christian experience, I, I rode the thing. I, they, I really should have, I really should have bought carpet for them. Because I'm sure my little footprint trail was was in the carpet in the aisle whenever the pastor would preach about certain kinds of things. Because God was dealing with me about them, and, and it, it concerns me greatly. Especially when, like, I've had an opportunity to be back to some churches as much as six times in the years that I've been in evangelism. And it really concerns me when I never, ever see the core senior adults in that church ever make a move at any time toward God. Now, I, w- I would never try to unchristianize anybody. But... You know, if we want a younger generation to believe in the altar and believe in the things that we've given our life to, they have to see it demonstrated. And we have to show them that we're still pliable, that when the light comes on, oh, okay, Lord. And there shouldn't be any stigma here. I tell my people back at the church where I'm supplying there, kind of an interim pastor thing for them, I tell them, the oldest saint and the youngest baby is welcome at this place. It's just where we talk to God about the issues in our life. There, there's not a stigma here. Or at least there shouldn't be. It's just a wonderful place to come and kneel in the presence of God and just open up your heart and let Jesus speak to you and crank up the rheostat and pour some more of his grace into those areas of your life where you need to grow. And there have been times as an evangelist when I've preached the message and, and then gone to the altar myself. You say, Brother, come down out of that work. <laughs> well, you just call the pastor up. They know how to give invitations. And you just let them come. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. It's a crisis that initiates a process. And it's, a li- it's intended to be a lifelong process. Of growing and developing and expanding. Now the question is then, how how are we going to let him do these great things? Well, this is going to sound a little strange, but our first step is to be converted. 
And you know, uh, we, Pastor and I have been talking over, over lunch about the, the changes in our culture and things that happen and the, the, the churches that no longer believe in things. And, and when preachers gave up this concept of, of conversion, then psychologists picked it up and said, well, there's changes that need to take place and something can happen to this person that totally changes their perspective on life and what needs to happen. And I'm not just, when I talk about being converted here, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the first time that you repented of your sins. I'm talking about that when the Holy Spirit cranks up that rheostat and shows us some facet in our life, we just need to respond to that facet. And I know that sounds old-fashioned. <clears throat> But you see, to be transformed in our heart nature from above, we, we've got to change the, the basic passion of our lives from self to another. We, we must, as Paul said, crucify the old man, the carnal self, that old sin principle in our nature. We have to become Christ-centered instead of self-centered. And I know that this story of this man is really an extreme case. But I want you to understand that the things I've said about him are, are not theory. They're experience. On the way up here, my GPS, taking me the shortest route from where I live in Bella Vista, took me to the main street of a little town called Eureka, Kansas. Eureka, Kansas is where I got saved when I was 12 years old, in a revival service. And a year later, I got sanctified. It was on a Wednesday night. Pastor had been preaching a series of messages on the spirit-filled life, and God had been talking to me. And I was about the only teenager that came on Wednesday night. And so I rode my bicycle there, and, uh, and so when I realized that I w- was going to go to Eureka, I thought, i got to find that church. <clears throat> and so I found it just a couple of blocks off of the, off the main highway through there. And I stopped to take some pictures. And, and all those memories came flooding back to me. And that Wednesday night, it was just a typical Nazarene service. Do you, do you remember when we used to do this? Maybe we still do in some circles. You, you came and you sang hymns and you had testimonies and then pastor gave a devotional and you prayed and went home. And that's exactly what we'd done and everything had been finished and pastor had a stand and was getting ready to pray the dismissal prayer and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and I was about halfway back. He said, Nathan, if, if you'll go to the altar, I'll sanctify him. And so everybody's heads bowed and pastor's already praying the dismissal prayer. And, and so I stepped out in the aisle. And when I stepped out in the aisle, instantly the Lord sanctified me. Just boom. It's, it really doesn't have to be a struggle, folks. It's just surrender. <laughs> it's just throwing up the white flag and saying, yes, Lord. Well, but I was in the aisle, so, so I went on down to the altar, and Pastor finishes his prayer, and everybody looks up, and here's this teenager at the altar, and he hasn't given an invitation. 
And so he comes down and kneels in front of me. He said, Nathan, what do you need? And I, I didn't help his cause. I said, I don't need anything. <laughs> he said, well, why, why are you here? I said, well, while you were praying, the Lord said to me, Nathan, if you, if you go to the altar, I'll fill you with the Spirit. But I said, Pastor, when I stepped out in the aisle, it happened. Just this peace came. I, I mean, the war had been going on inside of me. It just ceased. And this incredible, and I was thinking about it when she was praying, peace, playing peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray. And fathomless billows of love, yes. And so they hugged me, you know, and they, it was a wonderful, loving church, and they were encouraging the teenagers, and they, they hugged me, and, and I stayed around for a little while, and then, and then I left. And I got on my bicycle, and I started down Main Street, and, and, and our house was about about a mile and a half, maybe two miles from the church. I got about a block from the church, and God opened up the windows of heaven and poured a 55-gallon drum full of glory right down into my soul. I didn't ask for it. I didn't expect it. I didn't need it for a witness. The peace was there. I knew he'd come. But, I mean, that went through me like a bolt of lightning. And I took off on that bicycle. I was out running cars down Main Street. It only took me just a few minutes to get home. I'm flying. And we had a ditch, and I had to go look and see if the ditch was still there. I found the house. And, and I'm riding on a bicycle so fast, I just cleared that ditch. And when I came down, when the tires came down, I slammed on the brakes and jumped off of the thing. And just let it ride out in the yard and fall over. And I went down the front yard about two times. And then I thought, i got to come down because i got to go in the house pretty soon. And so I calmed down, and I walked through the front door, and, and the front door led into the living room, and my mom was coming from the kitchen to the living room, and I walked in the door, I didn't say anything, she just took one look at me and said, what happened to you? I guess the glory of God was still just all over me. And, 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 and so, Friday, when I, when I came through there, all those memories came flooding back. Um, it was such a glorious thing when the war was over and when Jesus was Lord of everything. Now, has he turned the searchlight up on me since then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, still does. I want him to keep turning up the light because I, I, I want to become more and more and more like him. I want romance to stay in my religion experience. I want to do those little assignments for him. I want want to be able to hear his voice. I want to be able to feel the slightest nudge. What I didn't tell you Sunday morning when I was describing the eagles. Out on the end of their wings, they have a little group of feathers called pinions. 
They're designed to catch the slightest whisper of a breeze. And I want I want my pinion wings, spiritually speaking. I I want to be able to be when the when the spirit moves. I just I just want to be able to just let him ruffle him and set me soaring. And that's what God can do for us. And so I again I'm, I have no idea why God asked me to preach this way. But maybe some of us just need to surrender. Maybe some of us, maybe, maybe, well, I've been preaching a simple little message. God, God, in some area of your life, God's been cranking up the rheostat. Saying, I, I, I need to get my holiness into that area. The question for us tonight is, are, are you going to let him? So I want you to stand with me. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is passing by this congregation tonight. In fact, he's been here every night. And I just believe the Lord wants to do some really good things for us. Lord, you're here. We just sent you. And and you're here to bring the war in some of us to a close. For others of us, you you're you're here to turn the rheostat up and say, "Can I have this? Will you let me get in here?" And we need to just open up our heart. We can remember when we were saved. We we can remember when you filled us with the Holy Spirit. But but you're asking us to go to another level of obedience and fellowship with you. Some of us long to have eagle wings. And you long to give them. And so in these next few moments we call invitation, would you... Would you just allow the Holy Spirit to breathe on us, move up and down these aisles and in and out of the rows and find us where we are? And would you do for us what you did for that precious, tormented man so many centuries ago now? Would you bring unity and would you bring peace and would you... Would you grow us to a level where, where we can live with ourselves and, and live with those that we are destined to live with and, and live not only with but for others? Lord, take us to a new level of obedience tonight so that your kingdom can advance in our own heart and then you can use us to lead others who are at war. To the Prince of Peace. We just ask you to be faithful. You, you will be faithful. But help us to hear you. And to be obedient. We ask it for your namesake.
I want her to play something there and just in a moment when she's ready to, just anything of your choice. And already there's been a beautiful spirit of obedience. But I just want to be open. He's not here tonight to condemn us. Not what this is about. He's just calling us to another level. He wants the war to cease. And already there's been a beautiful spirit of obedience. But I don't want anybody to miss this opportunity because because Jesus is passing by. If you can't kneel, it's okay to come and sit on the front seat. And, and let me make this offer before I close the invitation. If it seems too difficult to come on your own, just turn to somebody really close to you and say, would, would you go with me? I really believe they would. For all you know, God, could he actually be speaking to them? And when they realize that he's also speaking to you, it would give both of you courage. And you can just come together and what a blessing that would be to both of your heart. I'm going to wait just a minute longer because I don't want to weary you and I won't wait too long. Because if I did that, I'd grieve you and then I'd grieve the Holy Spirit and I won't do that. But I want to give you time. Thanks for being a gracious audience. If there's somebody here that you would just like to give some encouragement to by coming to pray with them, would would you just gather in quickly and quietly? And, And I hope some of you will. It just helps our brothers and sisters in the Lord for us to do that. And if you if you should need to go because of the lateness of the hour, I, I want you to feel free to slip out. And otherwise, would you just be seated there where you are so you can be comfortable? <laughs>